Remain standing and grab your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 1. And you can find Malachi on page 801 of your Pew Bibles. And you can also find it by going to Matthew and then one book to the left as we study and read this last book of Revelation in the Old Testament. A word or a burden from the Lord by the lips of Malachi. Hear now as God speaks to you through his holy, inspired, and life-giving word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this oracle, this burden that you gave to Malachi many years ago. That was a word of rebuke. That was a word of condemnation in ways. And yet, Lord, you so graciously show and reveal to your people your love. And Lord, we do pray that you would do the same this evening, uh, that you would give your Holy Spirit uh, so that we might grasp the heights and the depth of your love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There have been times throughout history where God has raised up unpopular men with unpopular messages to wake his people up from their spiritual Slumber. I remember when I was a a teenager, I came across a YouTube sermon uh, that uh, was given by a man who was at a conference to, I think, had about two or 3,000 youth attending it. And it was at this conference that this pastor got up uh, where he had perceived uh, the spiritual levity of the room, uh, that The kids and the students were laughing at all of the jokes the previous pastors had made, and there was no spiritual gravity to be found in that room. And so when one of the pastors had preached and gave an altar call, some thousand students came forward laughing all the way to the front. And so this pastor that got up to preach, he knew that he had to wake this group of people up. Uh, that they were blind to what was really going on. And so uh, he began to decry much of what he had seen. He began to speak about the hollow nature of their spirituality, how shallow it truly was. And he got to one point in the sermon where he had gone on this longer rant, and he paused, and the students began to clap. And he paused again and said, I don't know why you're clapping I'm talking about you. And it was in that moment that you could see even uh, through a YouTube video, uh, just the change of atmosphere in the room. 
when he had said that. There was complete silence for the next 30 minutes or so. And the reason why I tell you this is that is precisely the kind of effect that the Lord is bringing about through his messenger, Malachi. Uh, What we will find in the coming weeks, Lord willing, is a people who thought themselves to be religious and righteous before the Lord. They had returned from exile. They had rebuilt the temple. They had restored worship as God had commanded them. And they thought that their only problem was the slowness of the Lord to act. But the Lord sends Malachi to show them a very different picture, a different reality, that they were a people who in every way honored the Lord with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And that's what we'll see throughout our study of Malachi. In only four chapters, Malachi brings a word from the Lord to open the blinds, as it were, to let light shine upon their spiritual poverty, to show that their spirituality was worthless, to show that their Sacrifices were a stench to the Lord so that they would indeed turn back with sincerity to the Lord. And the first way that the Lord does this is simply by bringing before their very eyes their apathy towards the love of God. And so, what I want to do this evening is briefly look at God's or at Israel's doubt in God's love, love doubted. Uh, But then for the most of our time, we want to look at the demonstration of God's love, love demonstrated. In the book of Malachi, you might notice if you went home to read later this evening, uh, that is, it's organized according to what commentators call disputations. Maybe a simpler way to think about it is, is these confrontations that the Lord brings against Israel. So the people stand on one side of an issue, say the love of God as we see in this text, but in later weeks we'll see on the sincerity of their worship, the people stand on one side of the issue and the Lord stands on the other side of the issue, uh, showing them that what they perceived about themselves was false. Uh, One preacher called uh, his sermon series Collisions uh, because we find this kind of opposition against the Lord and the Lord breaking it all down with the truth of his word. And you see a sort of collision take place in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? The word of the Lord on the lips of Malachi starts on an encouraging note. The Lord has loved his people. The covenant love of the Lord endures forever. And yet, That note of kindness, of love, is met with utter hostility. How have you loved us, the people of Israel say? We don't see it. Does it look like you love us? It's that kind of cold-hearted response when perhaps a, a spouse makes a gesture of kindness to the other spouse, and that's met with hostility. Or perhaps a child who turns their face away from the parent because the parent didn't give them what they want. It's cold-hearted shrugging of the shoulders. Lord, we don't see your love. I can't tell that you have loved us. How have you loved us? The people ask. 
And commentators have speculated why Israel had such a doubt. It's entirely possible that they looked upon their circumstances being as they were under Persian rule and questioned how sincere the Lord's love was for them. They were in the city of Jerusalem, but the land had not been restored to its former glory. They had a new temple, but it wasn't the beauty and glory of Solomon's temple. Of course, all of these situational factors could have caused them to doubt the Lord's love. Uh, Whatever may be behind the doubt, we know that it is itself symptomatic of hearts far from God, isn't it? They stand as though they were in the right, thinking that the problem was lack of love in God and that they had done everything they were supposed to do. They think to themselves, he has not loved us. Israel has no warmth or affection for the Lord. Their religion had become formal at very best, giving lip service an attempt to appease the Lord. It didn't have that vital nature of true Christian spirituality that we love the Lord because he had first loved us. There was no love shared between the people and the Lord. I suppose we aren't all that different than the church of old. Perhaps a difficult circumstance arose this last week and you read providence like this. Where's the love of God in this? Can't see it. He must not love me. Or perhaps your life has been a series of unfortunate events, and each unfortunate event causes you to question, to doubt whether or not it's true that the Lord loves you. Because it doesn't look like he is loving you when that kind of suffering and pain comes into your life. Well, We know that who shall find fault with the Lord and who shall contend with the Almighty. Israel doubted and disputed love, but in the following verses, we see the Lord's love demonstrated for them. I like many others, I'm sure many in this room have benefited greatly from the ministry of R.C. Sproul. And reading his books and listening to his uh, lectures and teaching series, uh, one of the most iconic moments uh, that I think most of us would say uh, mark the life of R.C. Sproul, one of the, the most famous moments was when he was at a conference uh, during a Q&A uh, session. And the people had set off Sproul with their questions. They were kind of Uh, imputing to the Lord some kind of sense of unrighteousness. How could the Lord actually do such and such a thing? And so there was another question that was brought up to him. And you could see him become visibly frustrated. And he just simply says, what's wrong with you people? And the room erupted in laughter. Uh, But I, I suppose that's what we would expect when we hear Israel doubting the Lord's love. And that the Lord would come with a firm rebuke saying, what's wrong with you? Of course I loved you. Of course I've always loved you. How do you not know that? Uh, But this isn't at all what we see. Uh, We see the Lord, like a loving father, reassure them of their election. Reassure them of their position and standing before him. He says, "I 
I have loved you. I have always loved you. Yes, it may not match up with your experience, but I have always loved my people. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And where does he take them? How does he assure them of his love? But that he takes them to their unconditional election. What a place to go when someone doubts the love of the Lord. But the Lord saw that as fitting. And that they needed to be reminded that they had been chosen according to the riches of his grace. Look again at verse 2. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau's, Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. He takes them back to their origin. The Lord chose Jacob to be the line through which that Abrahamic blessing and promise would come through. And now it's worth asking, I think, why did the Lord choose Jacob and not Esau? Why did the Lord choose Israel and not the other nations? Well, the election of Israel, as we know from the narrative in Genesis, didn't follow the ordinary custom of choosing the line of family blessing. Esau is the older, and yet it's prophesied that the older shall serve the younger. And of course, if we look at Jacob's life, we ask, well, maybe he was more righteous. We know that's not the case. His name meant deceiver. It was a Hebrew idiom for a liar. And you can find all throughout Jacob's life that he is not one that is prone to seek after the righteousness of God. And so it couldn't be that. Well, perhaps he's a good leader. Perhaps he was someone that the Lord could really take and use for his glory. But Jacob wasn't the man's man that Esau was. Esau was out in the fields working day and night while Jacob was at home with his mother. And there was no right to, reason for, or righteousness in Jacob to receive the Lord's love. It was an unconditional love based on God's free and gracious choice. The Lord loved Jacob, despite Jacob. The Lord loved Israel, despite Israel. The Lord loves you, despite you. And they should have been able to put an end to all of their doubts by simply going back to Deuteronomy 7 and 9. You don't need to turn there now, but in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, it says that the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And then again in Deuteronomy 9, he tells them, don't say in your heart that it's because of your righteousness that I have brought you into the land. There's no reason, there's no condition found in Jacob, no condition found in Israel, no condition or righteousness found in the Lord's people for the reason that he elects them. Of course, we know in Romans 9, Paul picks up on this long line of reasoning. He says simply that 
Uh, though they were, not yet, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. It's an unconditional love. In our youth group, we have a competitive group of students uh, that often like to play uh, various sports on Wednesday nights. And uh, occasionally we allow a couple of the students to be team captains where they get to choose their own teammates. And I'm sure you could predict how, upon which criteria they choose their teammates. Who's the strongest? Who's the fastest? Uh, who plays that sport the most? And that's common uh, by worldly standards that we look at the most fitting, the most righteous, and think uh, that that is the one who is desirable. Uh, But with the Lord's unconditional election of his people, he looks at unlovely people. He looks at unrighteous people. And for no reason in them, he sets his love upon them. He chooses them. I suppose it's human nature to feel like and to want to feel like there's something in us that God saw in us and was the reason why he chose us. And there was something beautiful in us that he could just change and make it better for his own glory. But just as we have seen here, it's based on God's free and gracious choice. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And shouldn't that make us ask in true humility and sincerity? Why me? Why did God choose me? Why was I made a guest? Why was I made to hear his voice? No reason in me, but yet the Lord loves us. And so it's an unconditional love that he demonstrates to his people. But I also want you to see that it is an undeserved love. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated You've probably heard at some time when talking about the doctrine of election with other people, and that you might have heard a response, something like, I could never love a God who could choose some and not others. I could never love or worship a God that would send some to heaven and some to everlasting punishment in hell. How could that possibly be fair? Well, what the Lord is showing here in, in the following verses is his judgment upon Esau. Uh, much of what uh, Paul is talking about in Romans 9 is that he has vessels of wrath uh, that he pours out on them. Uh, but there is a very clear point that he's trying to make to Israel in this phrase of, of judgment. He's trying to show them by way of contrast his love for them and the deserved wrath and judgment of Edom and Esau. Now look down at verses 3 and 4. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will, we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. The way the Lord treats Jacob and Esau is unequal, 
Yes, it is asymmetrical. Yes, it is different. But that is not to say that what Esau and Edom received was not deserved. What's surprising about this text is that Israel didn't receive this same kind of treatment. Think about it for a moment. By virtue of their unfaithfulness, their spiritual adultery, that they would consistently and constantly, all throughout the Old Testament, turn away from God to idols, to strange gods, to offering worship to them. They should have been treated as Esau. They should have been called the wicked country. They should have never been able to build their own temple. They should have been the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And so what the Lord is doing for Israel is showing them against the backdrop of judgment. You see this, Israel? This is what you deserved. This is the righteous punishment, the right punishment for your sins. Esau and Edom are getting it, but I've spared you from that. See the distinction I make between you and all the other peoples of this earth. And so the Lord has loved them with an unconditional love. He has loved them with an undeserved love. And then lastly, he has loved them with an unbound love. Um, Most of you know how uh, pictures often can't contain all of the beauty of some place or destination uh, that you desire to go to. Maybe you've gone on a vacation recently and you've captured pictures of the beauty of that place. And yet, when you look at those pictures, you say, it was so much better in person. I remember when I was a, a kid uh, growing up, my mom would often talk about Glacier National Park. And she would say, oh, Seth, you're going to love it when you finally get to see it. It is so much better than these pictures that we were looking at. Uh, The beauty of the cascading mountains is breathtaking. Uh, Once you finally see it, uh, you will know just why it is a national park and why people go there. I suppose this is something of what the Lord is promising to do for Israel in verse 5. He says to them, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. They had a narrow view concerning the love of God. Uh, It had been restricted. It had been bound by their own experiences, thinking uh, that it was somehow small, uh, that it was limited. Uh, But the Lord is saying, there will come a day when you will look and you will see that the Lord is great beyond the borders of Israel, beyond your own little narrow view of life as it is you will see something truly remarkable. I think in the immediate context of speaking about the judgment of Edom, that ancient enemy of the people of God. But even if you glance down to verse 11, there's something that the Lord is kind of revealing throughout the book of Malachi. That his work would not be done just among the people of Israel, but that his name would become great in the nations. That all peoples would come and gather and truly recognize the name of their God. And you can understand why they needed to see this. They had become so closed off to what God was doing in their lives. They had become so spiritually blind that the Lord needed to show them that he was doing a work 
beyond their own little tiny perspectives. But we might ask, even in this text, what is it speaking about, this great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel? What is this kind of expansion? How does it take place by including the nations? And what's, in what way did God's name become great beyond the border of Israel? Well, I think you could go to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, a verse that I learned many years ago in Awana, that God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the remarkable demonstration of the love of God that he would one day display, that he has displayed in the coming of his very own son. Because it's through the line of Jacob that comes a Messiah. A Messiah who was treated as Esau, one who was afflicted, one who was cut off, one in whom received the anger and the wrath and the punishment that was due us. A one who was chosen and appointed to be the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. You see, the Lord demonstrated his love to his people. He's demonstrated that very same love to us through the sending of his own son. And as we close, I hope you can see the call of this text. The call of the love of God. The Lord is full and free in his love. You can't earn it. You can't require him to give it. You can't even deserve it. But just as he was calling his wayward children back home here in the book of Malachi, he calls his people home now. Those who doubt his love, those who have never received his love, he issues forth that call each and every day when his word is opened. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the call of God's love. Come back home. But I, can all, I hope you also can see the comfort of this love. What a statement we find in verse 2. I have loved you. That the holy judge of all creation would look down on people like you and me. Seeing all of our sin. Seeing all of the wretched thoughts that nobody else can see. And he says to us, I have loved you. That's amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This is a love that comforts. And he gives uh, to us an answer to every one of our doubts. How has he loved us? Well, he has loved us with an unconditional love, an undeserved love, an unbound love that comes to us through the gift of Jesus Christ. And I think... As we consider uh, these matters, especially with the doctrine of election that we see in this text, it's often common for people, for their minds to run to unbelieving family members. 
and, and friends who don't trust in the Lord and, and have deep questions about his election. But I think it, this text serves as the greatest comfort to that kind of concern. Because even in the life of Jacob, you can see how the Lord of love chases down his children. That Jacob fought sovereign love all his life. And that he resisted it. He was a deceiver. He even wrestled with the Lord. But sovereign love caught up to him. It can reach through and break even the hardest of hearts and give life to dead souls. And so it's a great comfort to know that our, lo- our Lord loves with this kind of sovereign love, that none can resist his hand. And so we can pray for those who do not know him, and that sovereign love would break out in their lives. And so it is indeed an unconditional love that he has loved us with. It is an undeserved love. And it's an unbound love, a love that even breaks through and finds people like you and me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, teach us uh, to pray that very same uh, prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And that we might understand the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of your love towards your people. Uh, Lord, help us to quiet our doubts. Help us to run to you uh, with love in our hearts so that we might offer to you a spiritual and acceptable worship in your eyes. We pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen.